This is episode three of the Health Translations podcast. Health Translations is Australia's largest directory for translated health and wellbeing resources. There are over 18,000 resources available in more than 105 languages. This series explores the way culture, language and health interact. In each episode, we talk to healthcare professionals and community members about the role translated health information plays in their lives. My name is Nicola and I work for the Centre for Culture, Ethnicity and Health a not-for-profit organisation that manages health translations on behalf of the Department of Health and Human Services. Today we're speaking with Emma Draysons, the National Coordinator of Diverse Community Programs, and Patricia Lee, Multicultural Project Officer at Positive Partnerships. Hi Patricia and Emma, thank you so much for joining us today on the Health Translations podcast. Could you please tell me about Positive Partnerships, how it came to be, and what do the words Positive Partnerships actually mean? Sure, absolutely. It's lovely to be here with you. Uh, We are a federally funded program uh, and our key aim is to improve the educational outcomes of school-age students on the autism spectrum. Uh, We've got lots of different um, parts of the programs and resources that we have. Uh, We work with parents, we work with school teams um, and we work with community members. We have lots of online learning and webinars available and we also have uh, fact sheets and resources. Brilliant. And are any of these fact sheets and resources culturally responsive? Are they designed for culturally and linguistically diverse communities? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So all of the resources that we've developed that are on the Health Translation Directory website have been developed in collaboration with members of multicultural communities. And we've also had community feedback on, on all of the resources as well. We often find when we're out at workshops and working with families and schools that yes. new topics come up as well. We can see where there might not be some information that already exists. So we also try and be responsive to what information is most relevant. Great. Can you um, give me an example of working with the community and what kind of feedback you've gotten on one of the resources you've developed? Yeah, sure. So in, in some culture and language groups, the, you know, the medical or diagnostic term autism spectrum disorder has actually been translated to be autism spectrum disease. And we're very aware that autism is not a disease, but in some cultures that is one of the myths about autism. So it's been really important for us to seek feedback from professionals and families in the community from that language and cultural group to make sure that our information's evidence-based and accurate and busting myths rather than reinforcing them. Mm. Positive Partnerships has actually developed a really great resource around facts and myths about autism, which is on health translations. Mm. Um, can I talk to you about some of those myths and maybe you can clarify you know, the facts about them? Is that all right? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the myths around autism is that it's the fault of the mother. Why is that a myth in the first place? Like, where does that come from? That's a really interesting one, and it probably has history in, across different cultures, but even within you know, Western cultures, not that long ago, there was actually a, a theory about refrigerator mothers. So the way um, mothers interacted with their children could actually cause them to be on the autism spectrum. We know that is completely untrue but I guess it it was a theory at one time so I think in in other cultures it's something that possibly still resonates Mm -hmm. Um, and we found that fact sheet to be really important because it does provide the evidence the research the science behind what we know also still some of the areas that we, we don't understand yet, but we also know that listening to the experiences of adults on the autism spectrum is really important, what helps them, what supports them, and a lot of the research is, is heading more in that direction, which is fantastic. Mm, great. 
And I know you do um, primarily target a younger demographic, so it's it's children in their communities. That's right. Yes, so any school-aged children, mm. um, sort of 5 to 18 years of age, but we find some of our resources are also helpful for, for younger children, younger families, mm. and some of our tools can also help, you know, beyond, um, you know, transition beyond high school. Yes. So if that's the case, could you speak about early intervention and, and the diagnosis process and how the fact sheets inform that process? There's lots and lots of research to support the benefits of early intervention. One of our, uh, I guess, key messages whenever mm. we're speaking with families is if, regardless of the age of the child, if they're concerned, find someone that they you know, can trust to talk to. At Positive Partnerships, we really believe in that strong relationship between home and school. Mm. Um, but it might be somebody else in the community or a medical professional that, that parents might feel comfortable to turn to. We also, a lot of the tools and resources we've developed can be used with any child, with any diverse learning needs. So whether a child has a diagnosis of autism or not, it's still important to focus on them as an individual, their strengths, their interests, what they can do really well but also what they need support with. So really encouraging families to move away from that deficit-based model and focus on their strengths. So a lot of the tools and, and resources mention autism, but we also find that for some families using that word may not be relevant for them where they're at in their journey, but we can talk about their child as a, as a young person. Mm, right, because I understand there's quite a lot of stigma around autism and so um, not everybody does use that term. Can you both speak a little bit about that stigma? I know there was an interesting case in the Nepali community. Mm. Is that right? There was one in the Chinese community recently that Patricia might like to to talk about in terms of the language used. Okay, sure. For Chinese, if you look at autism, they will translate it into something like self or restricted and it will have the implications of very negative and it's kind of a disease. So that's uh, for Chinese translations. So it, it's not completely reflect what's uh, exactly how, or how diversified it can be for autism spectrum. But unfortunately, you will never be able to find a, a very accurate or uh, exact term to perfectly translate autism from English to Chinese. That's something, yeah, we, we, we tried our best, but uh, you can't really do anything about that because this was a term have a kind of a restricted and a repetitive behaviors or rituals, which will be very confusing and also not the one used by doctors or psychologists and parents will be also confused. So I think this is kind of, a, you know, the cultural issues related to the in particular translation. Mm. And I think in that case, Patricia, the term repetitive behaviours or restricted interest was translated quite literally to mean children that were highly traditional in their behaviour or quite religious. Mm. Um, so yeah. what it actually is talking about is children that we might see them engaging in behaviours over and over again, and they may be doing that to understand. It was really important to have a discussion around the language in that context so that we're not confusing families further. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And with the resources that you do develop, because you do have to tailor them to the different communities, how do you determine what topics to cover? You mentioned before that you identify gaps. Could you give an example of one such gap that you might have encountered and how you create a resource to address that? I guess in in all of the work we do with, with parents, schools and communities, we try and partner with trusted organisations and we're guided by them as to what the level of knowledge around autism might be within that community. So we try and... I guess, tailored topics to the conversations that might be emerging 
for families in in that community. We also are currently developing a new resources, uh, a new resource specifically mm-hmm. for multicultural communities about autism. So mm-hmm. an, an introductory conversation okay. that represent, represents diverse families, diverse experiences, mm-hmm. families that may have accessed early intervention, some families that may have had a later diagnosis or a misdiagnosis, and possibly for families that link in with our program sometimes, mm-hmm. they may feel that their child has some characteristics they're not sure, but they've never met another parent of a child on the spectrum. So coming into that supportive group environment where Mm. they can access up-to-date information sometimes just helps guide their next steps. This episode is brought to you by CEH, the Centre for Culture, Ethnicity and Health. CEH works to improve the health of people from migrant, refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds. CEH offers professional development to individuals and organizations in the areas of culture competence, health literacy, working with interpreters, and more. Through this training, workplaces have been able to improve their inclusivity, efficiency, and their responses to people from migrant and refugee backgrounds. To find out more, go to www.ceh.org.au. So if a parent is concerned about their child's behaviour, is their first port of call to contact Positive Partnerships? Is that the step that they should take? Uh, They're welcome to come to our website and access information. Any places around Australia where we're holding a workshop Mm. for community or for parents, they're welcome to connect with us. Mm. But we would encourage them to speak either with a trusted person at school or with a medical professional that can give them a referral to someone like a speech pathologist, for example, who can start giving them some practical advice. Mm, someone in their local community there's also some great information lines that that um, families can call using an interpreter that might guide them on local information that can help them Mm. yes so you mentioned that a speech pathologist might be one of the professionals that might be able to assist a family who does have a child on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other sort of professionals that you might engage in that capacity? One of our key resources covers professionals, allied health professionals that are available to support families. It's called Who Can Help? It's quite a, a simple English document we've translated mm-hmm. into 11 languages at the moment. And it outlines the role of occupational therapists as well, psychologists, social workers. We find sometimes there's misunderstandings about the roles that those Mm. people can play. Mm. For example, if a child is speaking, albeit differently, they may not need to see a speech pathologist or that occupational therapists just help children with handwriting, whereas we know that they support children with lots of functional practical skills, including sensory processing. So we try and encourage families just to have clear information about how those professionals can help so that they may feel more comfortable to to access and, and link in. Okay, and how do you determine which languages that your resources are going to be tra- uh, translated into? That's a very good question. Yes. I guess we're guided by data, mm-hmm. so the the largest numbers of communities within Australia, but particularly that would have school-aged children. We're also conscious we do encourage grandparents to come along to our workshops sometimes, even if parents have quite good English language proficiency and feel quite comfortable speaking in English, they may prefer to have more complex medical information and fact sheets in in one of their first languages or share it with someone from an extended family member from an older generation. I guess the data tells part of the picture. You know, we're open to feedback from organisations particularly that are supporting multicultural families as to which communities this is an emerging conversation in. So, for example, we have resources in Nepali, even though that 
there is not a large population of mm. Nepalese people in Australia. It's growing, okay. um, and particularly in terms of their, their health literacy, ch- children's development and diversity has been an emerging conversation, and mm. we've really found that community quite open and supportive about talking about autism. How do you get in touch with the community? So obviously people do come to your website, but... How else do you reach out to different communities? Because sometimes, like you said, people aren't aware of, you know, what is happening. Um, Do you go to libraries or churches or what's your process with that? Yeah, it's quite varied, Pat. You can talk about the process with um, Um, the groups here in Melbourne. Yeah. uh, I think, um, first of all, if we we know some of them beforehand, so it's easier, so I will just uh, connect them with us. Um, given our previous experience, uh, I actually uh, do a uh, research on the website, and then we identify a group, mm-hmm. and, and, and somehow, you know, we uh, start contact the group, and then... Um, we introduce ourselves and because that is a group uh, with um, most of the members uh, having children on the uh, on the spectrum so we can easily you know connect it with each other and how do you reach that group though like so i think the first step is uh, um, if we have any uh, our previous relationship <laughs> connections um, our, our own uh, business network or personal network that would be the first step if um, we couldn't um, have um, that kind of a contact then the next one as I said earlier I will do a research on the website and, and identify a group and then we will kind of a cold call so um, oh, cool. okay, yeah, great. That, yeah. That, yeah. Mm. that's the way we, we start and um and but somehow you know uh if you've been uh, in the community for a while somehow you will know one or two members of each of uh, those community groups and and when you um you know talk about uh you 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 introduce each other then somehow you will connect to uh you you realize you do have uh, some common friends mm. yeah. and i would say having someone within that community um, as part of our organisation has been an invaluable asset. You know, Patricia's contributions and ability to connect with people of her own culture and, and the languages that you speak um, has really helped us to um, connect with the right people, support the right people mm-hmm. and, and have a really sort of authentic working relationship with those people. And one thing probably uh, is better because we know the culture definitely better so we know uh, how to approach them uh, more effectively and and then uh, we know what you know uh, something we we shouldn't say you know that kind of things and when we uh, even um, organize uh, workshops or, or information sessions and then we know what um, they would like to have uh, such as uh, as Emma mentioned um, before uh, we will have the translated resources that's something you know very useful and and um, and will be uh, more e- effectively engage them as well as we uh, arrange uh, interpreter so that's another uh, good thing you know for uh, engaging the multicultural communities mm. Absolutely. Mm. and we've also been guided by you Patricia on you know culturally relevant and appropriate places to hold the venue Yummy food. food. Yes, yeah. we can't miss. Very yeah. important. <laughs> yes, yeah. Some yeah, yummy, delicious food. Uh, 
to yeah to cater for one particular yeah group of people or culture mm. yeah that's also another yeah good thing to um yeah to be uh, more uh, more effectively engaged uh, people mm. do you find so when speaking about those venues what venues would be not culturally appropriate that you might have had to veto in the past are there certain locations that really stand out as great places to engage communities or? uh for say for example for chinese uh, community very practical uh it doesn't have to be a very cozy or um, very um, grand venue. So um, what they treasure more is a convenience and also familiar place. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear about the convenience aspect as well because I think we encounter that when we're, we've got community groups. Sometimes things aren't held at good times for a community. If they've got children or they're working, they're not going to be able to attend a group. And similarly... We try and if we're addressing a group in the West, we want to hold the event in the West mm. and make it near public transport and accessible. Yes. And it sounds like Positive Partnerships does the same with the programs and workshops that you do. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Yeah, local. Yes. Although we have had a one mum drove for an hour and a half to get to a to, workshop. Yeah, to a workshop um, because, yeah, she sees the value, mm. so she doesn't mind. So um, at... The thing is, um, the value and the um, uh, the practical uh, strategies, you know, mm-hmm. would be something you know they treasure more. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, it shows how important the work you're doing is if people are prepared to travel that far mm. to access it. Yes. Yeah, and we've also tried to keep the sessions shorter, so we typically run full day workshops, feedback from the community as well, suggested you know, two and a half hours of information is enough to take on board at one time mm. um we you know sometimes come back to run a second or third session with with some weeks gap in between but also so people can keep work and family commitments um, mm. we also do run workshops on the weekend yes. as well uh, particularly if we're working alongside you know community organizations or, or language schools that have events on the weekend will sometimes run um an information session for families while children are engaged in cultural events. Perfect, because then you don't have to worry about maybe a babysitter or something like that. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a great factor. strategy. For, yeah, okay, yes, right. yes. For people who are interested in developing resources for their organisation to better engage with community members, how do you go about it? So for one of our key resources of Family Journey, uh, which it describes the the story of a a migrant family coming to Australia, navigating their way through all of the different systems and processes here and then learning that their child is developing differently. That was developed with a focus group of people from different cultures. That included professionals and parents who themselves had a child on the spectrum. We also had fathers as part of that reference and focus group and the feedback from the men in the group was that it was really important that resource was told from the perspective of a, a male, of a dad, oh. uh, to try and connect with with some of the dads in different communities that, you know, may be looking for a resource or information that's relevant for them that has their voice as well. So they really guided what that resource looked like. They told us it was important that it explored some of the information um, and experiences around extended family members, so parents being told possibly boys talk later than girls don't worry they'll catch up or your child just needs more discipline or you know even being told by professionals um, it's because your child's learning English and it's not their first language that's why they're having difficulty at school right okay so it really guided all of the key 
key conversation and discussion points within that resource that was based on their experiences. So what other family members did you need to consider when you were developing a family journey? For, uh, for example, the, uh, a family journey, we have mentioned grandparents mm-hmm. in the video. I think this is really good because for some multicultural community, uh, say for example, Chinese community, uh, grandparents are playing a more and more important role than before. You can see some young parents, they will ask their parents, that is uh, grandparents, to come over long way from China to Australia probably for uh, three months because that's uh, what their visa will only allow to stay here for three months and to look after their grandchildren after three months they will go back to where they come from and apply the visa again so they will use this kind of model for the grandparents to come over here and help look after the grandchildren actually more of the uh, family time uh, the, the children actually spend with the grandparents mm. so you can you can see if grandparents knows how to help their grandchildren that will definitely help a lot for the whole growth you know for the for the children right so it's about including the entire family in the yes, process yes. and giving them all information yeah so it's not just about the parents now you, you have to look at uh, from a broader family picture so grandparents or even aunties sometimes mm. so these are the people that we have to also engage. Right. And where can families go to access more information about positive partnerships? The best place would be through the Health Translation Directory website or our website, which is positivepartnerships.com.au. Thank you so much. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. It's been thank great you. talking to you. Oh, it's been our pleasure. My thank pleasure. you. Yeah, thank you. That was Emma Drayson's and Patricia Lee from Positive Partnerships. We've been talking about the way focus groups and community consultation can guide a resource in unexpected ways, cultural considerations when running workshops, misunderstandings about autism spectrum disorder, and where parents, schools and communities can go for support. The music for this podcast was created by Zeb Rogerson. This episode was produced by Nicola Nemerick and Annie Tillak-Benton. The podcast was made possible by the Centre for Culture, Ethnicity and Health. For show notes and to learn more, head to www.ceh.org.au forward slash podcast.